We finished our series in James, and this morning I want to look at that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that uh, Leslie read to us early in the service. Um, in coming weeks, um, Martin Russell and John Collard and Stephen Preston will be preaching God's Word to us, and I'm grateful to them for their agreeing to do that. The first Sunday in June is a Sunday when we've been used to celebrating communion here at Clermonton. Communion online is actually when I'm most keenly aware and miss the congregation being gathered. I'm more keenly aware not only of, well, this is not how we used to be and used to do it, but more importantly, I'm more aware of this is not how it's supposed to be. Even as an excellent vaccination program continues, we're hearing calls to return to what we knew, what we had before, calls not only or not even mainly about in churches getting back, but getting back to normal in all kinds of ways. For some people in the country, the um, easing of restrictions is too slow. For others, it's much too fast. And in that mix, there is church, there is the questions about what is ahead for us as a people, as a congregation. What will it look like when, as I hope and pray it will, we're able to gather on the other side of restrictions, and a lot more of what congregations did is able to take place. Are we hoping simply to return to what was before? Or maybe some have got the taste for watching services at home, having your breakfast, and sitting there in your pajamas as you look on. Just as people have responded differently to lockdown and restrictions— and just as people are responding differently to the, the rollback, saying it's too fast or it's too slow, we, we will respond differently when we're beyond these restrictions. And then there's the unknown about whether further waves of infection will come or new or different kinds of infection. The Indian variant might not be the, the last one. In fact, I've heard talk this week of one from Nepal. There's an uncertainty, an insecurity of a, of a kind that we have did not know previously. Things that we were sure of, things that we assumed, things that we took for granted, suddenly a lot less certain. And as we look ahead in all that mix about what church is or what we want church to be, what's essential to have and what we can do without. We have to consider these things and wonder if it's more than just a case of as you were and putting things back into place. There might even be questions about do we bother? Why do we bother? Do I really need church or faith or God? Or can we have faith God's favour on us without church, without gathering as once we did, without the meetings of the organisations that we used to know. Now, it's not at all new um, for the church to have to face those kind of questions. In fact, it's about 2,000 years old for the Christian church. And in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is facing those kind of questions within himself, not because of a pandemic, but because of all that he's been through in his experience as an apostle. He had suffered beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, and much more, including being stabbed in the back by the summit Corinth, who he had led to faith in Jesus. And I think Paul must have wondered, why bother? 
Surely he must have asked himself at time, do I really need to go back? Do I really need to do this again? Is church that important? Is it worth it? But he affirms in verse 1 of that passage that Leslie read that he has not lost heart. How come? Well, we've not, he's not lost heart, he says, because the ministry has come, he's been called to, has come through God's mercy. That is, it's the experience of having received the mercy of God that Paul's faithful service was rooted in. Here is his rock and foundation. Not that church or ministry seemed like a good thing to be involved in, not that he enjoyed others' company, not that he felt he needed this in his life, not that he realized he was good at it and had something to give, not these or any one of thousands of other things. Rather, it is through God's mercy he's doing what he does. And that's what calls the church into being, the mercy of God. And it's having a grasp of the mercy of God. That is to, to the church what blood is to the body. It is life-giving. It's what makes anything and everything else possible. And to be indifferent about whether or not we praise God, to be fitful in remembering to pray, to be casual in getting together to build up the body of Christ, to be unwilling to make sacrifices for the cause of Christ, to give only out of our surplus, to hold back encouragements for others, to not confess our sins, to not bear one another's burdens, to never mention Jesus to our non-Christian friends and family members, to be disinterested in God's mission in the world, all these and more are not because we've got good reason to let these things slip, not because we've got excuses, not because it's a matter of taste and preference. No, when these things are the case, it's because we are insensitive to the mercy of God. When the mercy of God does not mean much, then church is at best a pale imitation or at worst a complete sham. In Luke chapter 7, Verses 40 and following, Jesus told a parable, a parable which reached the conclusion, verse 47, when Jesus says, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And it's little awareness of being forgiven that is at the root of so much of our indifference, half-heartedness, and ineffectiveness as a church. When it comes to picking up the pieces after the pandemic, when we're allowed to gather again, when we can be with one another safely. It should not simply or even mainly be about seeing my pals or about having something that we enjoy that fills our timetable. It's about gathering to affirm how great is the mercy of God and to inspire and have us inspired and filled and, and driven by the challenge to say, let us be church because there is a great message. There is a great reality in the mercy of God. And we want to show and share and live that. So when discussions go on about maybe having different ways of doing things or new techniques or different services or this plan or that plan, we must remember and realize that important and relevant as some of these might be, 
without a keen sense of the mercy of God, it's pointless. And when it comes to participation in the body of Christ, the issue is not, can I be bothered? The issue is, how much does the mercy of God mean to me? The issue is not, does this suit my preference, my taste? Does it fit in with my timetable? But rather, does God's mercy mean much? Because when God's mercy does mean much, the issue is not putting on a program that appeals to me, that entertains, but that we fulfill the calling to be church, to love, to care, to serve, to, to encourage, to bear one another's burdens, and so on. So Paul says it's the mercy of God that gathers us, the mercy of God that motivates us. And if it's the mercy of God that motivates us, the, the message or the content of what we're doing is that declaration, verse 5, that Jesus is Lord. You see, it's not about us. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not about making a wee bit of improvement here or there or bringing some relief or some insight, but rather it's a declaration to the world that Jesus is Lord. Now, for Paul to say Jesus is Lord in the world of the Roman Empire meant that Caesar wasn't Lord. It was a contentious thing to say. It was a challenging thing to say. And it's always a message that challenges and confronts the world as we find it. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are saying whatever else the world thinks and whatever else the world says and is depending on and having at its main priority, Jesus is different and calls us to a different way. And so when it comes to what will be possible again, what we might engage or re-engage in, it's not some option like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have church like we can have a holiday overseas again, or we can maybe go to the cinema or the theater again, or so on. If we are truly gripped by receive, having received God's mercy, if we see the huge meaning and significance of saying Jesus is Lord, then the invitation and the call, the privilege and responsibility is to declare and make known that most wonderful news of all. But that declaration that Jesus is Lord is a declaration of where real power lies. The God who made light shine out of darkness in the story of creation, Genesis 1. The God who brought light that overcame darkness in Jesus, prophesied in Isaiah 9 and reflected on in John chapter 1. That God now can make his light shine in our hearts, verse 6. So someone coming to Christ, someone who recognizes that Jesus Lord does so despite the efforts of the God of this world, verse 4. And it's only because of an act of divine grace and sovereignty just as much as creation was, just as much as the sending of the Messiah was. It's only because of the act of God that we then find him. And every time someone comes to faith in Christ, that's a further fulfillment of the Messiah prophecy. It's a further instance of God's life-giving creative power. And so we seek for that work, that movement of God among us as we declare Jesus is Lord and nowhere else is salvation found. But that declaration to say that Jesus is Lord had a corresponding 
impact, says Paul, in the second half of verse 5, declaring Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. One of the very striking things about Jesus' lordship is that he didn't come with a big army and try and force himself. That's how Caesar had got to be Caesar. That's how other rulers have done it. That's how big business in our world gets power, by manipulating, by doing uh, contracts that, that, that they can afford that, that, that further oppress those that don't have. It's, it's power. It's influence. Jesus' lordship was not won through force or manipulation. He came to serve. And in Matthew 20, he told his disciples that while unbelievers lorded over one another, it was to be different with the people of God, just it had been very different for him. As he says, verse 28 of Matthew 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who did not jealously protect all his privileges and, and bonuses, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, Philippians 2, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was obedient even, even to death on the cross. Jesus is the one who before the meal that we remember today as we share in the supper, who before that meal got down and washed the disciples' feet, we cannot declare Jesus. We cannot show Jesus without making ourselves and offering ourselves to be the servants of others. For the only Jesus that there is, the only Jesus who is Lord is the Jesus who emptied himself, the Jesus who came to serve rather than be served, the Jesus who stooped to wash feet. And it's the way of Jesus, the only way to follow Jesus is by serving others. And so again, when it comes to the thinking of any kind of resumption of church life, it should not be in the first instance what we are going to be able to do and have and enjoy. Rather, it should be the increased opportunities to serve others, to be a blessing to others, to help one another to serve in Jesus' name. Well, I mentioned earlier that people have been seeing things differently in terms of what this pandemic means, how we should behave, how we should come out of it, and so on. And another point of contention, of course, has been around vaccinations, about whether we should or shouldn't let people refuse them. And of course, some of the viewpoints, some of the arguments have come up with that, well, it's their choice line. You can't decide for someone else, it's their choice as if we were only to do what suits us, what appeals to us, as if we only have rights but not any responsibilities. And if there is good reason for someone to refuse the vaccine, then that, vaccine, then that certainly is not it. It's not about exercising personal freedom and choice. For life is not simply a matter of a string of personal choices and preferences. All of our choices, all of our decisions have impact on other people. And so while our society so often does approach things through this, the, it's your choice, it's up to you, do what you like, 
Look after yourself. Be good to yourself. It's not the way of Jesus. And one of the clearest indications that we have that the church has capitulated, given in to the spirit of the age. One of the clearest signs that that's happened rather than our being faithful to Jesus is when we repeat that kind of thinking and behaving in church. I'll do what I like. I'll volunteer if I feel like it. I'll play my part if I have nothing else to do. It's my choice. Commitment's an option. I'll only be involved if it suits. Only if I'm getting something out of it. That's not the viewpoint. That's not the conversation servants have. Can you imagine the servants in a big house in the Roman Empire saying, well, who feels like working today? Who's going along? Who's going to turn up to serve breakfast today? Can you imagine them having those kind of conversations? Oh, well, I'll maybe do it today, but I'm going away for the next few days. Tell the boss I won't be around. Servants don't have that kind of conversation. And an awareness of the mercy of God, verse 1, leads us to that proclamation that Christ is Lord, verse 5. And that second half of verse 5 leads us to the conclusion that we are servants of others in Jesus' name. For the only way that we can make Jesus known is by being faithful to Jesus, and he is the one who stooped to serve. Well, I am sorry that today in a communion service we're not all gathered in one place. I'm afraid we can't do anything about that today. But if and when it comes to a time when we can do something about it, it's not enough to enjoy the togetherness. It's not enough to be maybe I, maybe no. For we must gather to affirm that without God's mercy, we are nothing. We meet to get a fresh realization, a deeper grasp of what the mercy of God really is and what it means and does for us. We must gather to commit to the task of making known that Jesus is Lord that the world's not got it right, the truth and the salvation's in Christ and Him alone. And that's why it's important for God's people to keep meaning together, to, to work out how do we serve in an alien world. And we must gather to pledge ourselves to be agents of God's mercy, channels of His mercy, to serve others in order to make Jesus known. And so the real issues for us are not about getting back to what we once had, not our return to normal. The church is called to follow, to follow a God who is on the move, a God who is at work in the world, a God who is longing for His kingdom to flourish and grow. And the real issues are whether or not we get that, whether or not we are faithful citizens of that kingdom. It begins with a realization of how much we need the mercy of God and how much the mercy of God does for us and matters to us. 
It grows in the expression of Jesus being the Lord of life, not some religious pastime. And the realization that because He is Lord, we are servants seeking to bless the world around us, the communities that we are part of. And to do that not on our terms, but on Jesus' terms, and to do that not when it suits, but as first priority. For did Jesus not say, seek first the kingdom of God? Let us pray. Lord, despite all these kicks in the teeth and much worse that the Apostle Paul had taken, he continued to serve, continued to love, continued to be fruitful for you because the mercy of God was real in his life. Help us to grow more deeply into the awareness of how much you love, how merciful and good you are. And might that inspire us to live out your lordship and live out your lordship in a way that stoops to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.